The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical firsthand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella. I'm the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Uh, Social Coast 2020, Tyler. The coverage continues from Charleston, South Carolina. I've got to say, it's been a, an eye-opening uh, conference for us so far, and a lot of really interesting guests and perspectives new to the network at ASPN, and I think we're going to continue that. Now, joining us on the show today, again, Bill O'Byrne, a, a long-time uh, NOAA staff person who will be joining ASPN soon as a podcast host. Bill, good to see you again. Glad to be here. And uh, a great guest. Uh, we are talking to Skip Stiles. He's the executive director of an organization called Wetlands Watch uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. And the reason we wanted to talk to Skip is because he happens to be working in the area on the American shoreline with the highest sea level rise in America, uh, which is presenting new challenges to that community. And Skip is at the forefront of trying to respond to that and working in communities. Skip Stiles, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's one of the things that we love about conferences, smart people available to talk to. Uh, Skip, to help our audiences, give our uh, audience a little introduction, uh, your background, where you're from, your education, and why is it that you found yourself at the forefront of climate adaptation and coastal sea level rise adaptation? Well, a long time ago, I, uh, I worked on Capitol Hill. I worked for 22 years um, in Congress, and the guy I worked for was along with Al Gore, the guy who held the first climate change hearings in 1975. And so I got an early introduction to climate change back in the 70s when things were a lot simpler and a lot less dire. And um, when I left, I did some consulting for foundations and other folks. And my wife's an oceanographer, so we ended up in Norfolk where she's on faculty at Old Dominion University. And I was casting about for something to do and ran into this group called Wetlands Watch. We, at that time, 2000, six were um, doing conventional wetlands work and we ran into a fellow who was doing some climate work a scientist and he told us uh, what sea level rise was all about 
And we went and looked, and we said, oh, my gosh, with the rates of sea level rise this guy's talking about, we're going to get, which then was two and a half feet a century, we're going to lose most of our wetlands. So that's when we started working on this. My background, um, I just have a bachelor's degree in sociology and stumbled onto the hill and became a political hack and uh, um, worked on the science committee where I I had to learn to translate science into things that would get uh, majority votes. And we had most of the research accounts and all of EPA's uh, environmental research accounts, so I became pretty adept at trying to tell people why they should vote for increased EPA. And NOAA, we had NOAA wet, the, the, the um, ocean accounts at NOAA. So I came into it with a, with a background of sort of translating science into action and then had this deep uh, background in, uh, in climate change. And then when we stumbled onto coastal Virginia and saw what we were facing in terms of sea level rise, it became sort of a natural, natural convergence, if you will. One of my uh, the favorite things to do on this show is when we talk to people from all over the American shoreline, uh, having them kind of fill us in on, on what the actual shoreline there and uh, wherever they may be from is like. And uh, I haven't actually been to Norfolk, but I'm, I'm curious to know uh, what, what the environment is like there and, you know, what, what are we talking about? What, kind of, what are the physical characteristics of this shoreline? Well, it's sort of a typical, like North Carolina, South Carolina, we're sort of the northernmost of those old, flat, low-country shorelines. Um, lots of marshes, lots of uh, slow-meandering rivers. Um, what's unique about, about our area is because we're right at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, it's a great natural harbor. So everybody and their brother set up shop there to do shipping, and then the Navy came in. So we're a big, big, big Navy town. Um, and so the, the development that's there is, is a lot of shoreline-dependent industry. The only place you can build uh, aircraft carriers in the U.S. is right there. Naval Station Norfolk, largest naval base in the world. So it's a flat area with a whole lot of critical assets on top of it. And that's, you know, fine for the first few hundred years of the country, but now it's turning out to be not the place you want a lot of those assets when you've got, well, our, our estimates, foot and a half by 2050, three feet by 2080, and four feet by end of century for sea level rise. So okay, four... Uh, feet. Yeah, and these are these are not, you know, downscale this and that. These were approved by the 17 local governments in southeast Virginia because they got tired of waiting for somebody to tell them what kind of sea level mm-hmm. rise we were going to expect. So they've all voted unanimously to set these as guidelines for the region. So it's, you and know. plan accordingly. We hope. <laughs> uh, well, and, and real quick here, um, we were talking before the show about the the factors that make sea level rise in this part of the American shoreline around Norfolk, Virginia uh, so high. And it's important that our audience understand that sea level rise is not consistent along the American shoreline. It varies for lots of reasons. Can you educate uh, um, us a little bit about that? Or Bill, go ahead. Well, I, I just want to say, Skip, if you could explain relative sea level rise, because oh, I think yeah. that's what you're talking about as opposed to what the normal global sea level rise will be. Right. Relative sea level rise involves both what's the ocean doing and what's the land doing. So um, if you look back over the last, the measured sea level rise over the last, uh, oh, I don't know, 100 years, a place like Alaska um, is actually rise, the land is rising up in the air faster than sea level rise because the glaciers melted and the land's moving north or, or upward. So they actually have negative sea level rise. You go to a place like ours, 
where the land is falling, and you've got a higher rate of sea level rise than you do even up in up in New York. The reason being, we've had measured at Norfolk at the Naval Station a foot and a half of sea level rise over the last hundred years. Eight inches of that is water level increasing, but ten inches of that is the land falling. And the land is is falling because, well, for two major reasons. The biggest one is probably, you know, when John Smith showed up there a few hundred years ago, the water table was one to two hundred feet higher than it is now. And because of agriculture and industry, the water level has dropped. As you withdraw that much water, the land falls. So you've got subsidence because of that. But then the other piece is that... um, sort of like a teeter-totter. When the glaciers were over New York, we got pushed up in the air, and then the kid jumped off the other end of the teeter-totter. The glaciers melted about 20,000 years ago, and we're now falling back to where we were before the glaciers were there. And you'd also said, Skip, a little bit about the the effects uh, potentially of the change in speed of the Gulf Stream. Yeah, there's some really interesting work that was done at Old Dominion University where um, they detected a slowdown in the Gulf Stream we're closest to the Gulf Stream of anywhere on the East Coast um, in um, coastal Virginia. I think it's about 60 miles offshore. And it actually, as it moves by, it actually lowers the water level at our coastline. But because it's slowing down, and the reasons may be the freshwater pulse off of Greenland is causing the Gulf Stream to slow down, but as it slows, the Earth's rotation brings the Gulf Stream closer to shore. And as it comes closer to shore, it brings the water back up onto the shore. So we've right. got this last 15, 20 years, we've had this additional increment of sea level ri- relative sea level rise. And so it really has to do with uh, the, the force of gravity acting on the shape of the ocean surface here as the isn't, and so it's pulling the water a little bit higher and moving it a little bit. So you uh, have this intensification of sea level rise in the Norfolk area. So when I think of Wetlands Watch, I think of you guys out there, you know, counting birds and looking for clapper rails and uh, maybe planting Spartina. It sounds like your organization under your leadership as executive director is taking an active role in the issues related to sea level rise. Can you talk about why that's important to your organization? Yeah, we um, we were doing that conventional wetlands work. And then about 2006, we met with um, Carl Hirschner and a few of the scientists from VIMS and um, explored sea level rise. And we realized that mm, wetlands can move vertically in our part of the world about two feet a century. They trap dirt and they grow, you know, they trap sediment and grow on top of it. But the rates of sea level rise we were looking at in 2006, two and a half feet, was going to drown the wetlands. So then the only other way the wetlands can survive is if they, tra- if they move onto shore, transgress, with the new intertidal zone. So then we realized, well, wait a minute, we got, we're going to lose, oops, probably 50 to 80% of our vegetated tidal wetlands. We, we took a lot of bad data and a little bit of good scotch and guessed it would be 50 to 80%. Um, it's about that range. Um, and we said, my gosh, then we've got to keep the shoreline open. We've got to allow retreat zones for these wetlands. And so that's when we, we changed to um, an agenda that was mostly about sea level rise. Because we were, you know, saving postage stamp sizes, pieces of wetlands, and we were going to lose the whole, the whole thing if we didn't didn't shift our agenda. So, Skip, your uh, your talk that you're giving uh, here at the Social Coast Forum in 2020 is titled "Finding Barriers to Local Government Adaptation Action." Tell me about the barriers that you are finding. 
Well, we work almost entirely with local governments because they control most of the things that have to do with where people live along the shoreline and where they live in the right place or the wrong place. And so in our work with local governments, we've tried to um, figure out, you know, why did you put that subdivision right there? Why did you permit that? And in the course of doing that, um, we found over the years the reasons have changed. At first, it was simple ignorance. What? What's wetland? What's uh, sea level rise? You know, what are you talking about? Why can't I put that subdivision there? And then as, as people became more aware of it, then it was like, well, wait a minute. Can I deny that person that right? It's private property. So we encountered then a whole lot of legal barriers or what people perceived as legal barriers. And so we've shifted then to sort of helping people, you know, unsnarl that. And we work uh, collaboratively with um, the William Murray Law School's Coastal Policy Center. So we get a lot of smart law students looking at this. Um, we work with VIMS to do the science. We have a lot of partners that we work with, and we try to bring them into the conversation with local governments so that they say, oh, this, this is a problem, or this is the right decision, or this is not making sense over the long run. A lot of economics involved. Um, don't put the subdivision in. I don't get the property taxes. Wait a minute. You know, the developers of my brother-in-law. You know, so it's, the economy has a lot to do with it. Most of these localities get 60% of their revenue from property taxes. A you know, piece of soggy coastal land doesn't bring in a lot of property taxes. But when you look out into the future, you're not having to buy out all of those people who put a subdivision on that soggy land in 30 years. So we try to get localities to think in terms of life cycle costing or total ownership cost and you know, make the right decision not just for today but for the future. But it's tough. I mean, in a lot of these counties, especially rural counties that are cash-strapped, you know, there's there's a lot of income on the table that you're you're not allowing them to use if they if right. they make the right decision, right? And those county officials are usually on there for four to eight years, yeah, sometimes I, longer. But we were we were working in one city, and I was talking to a stormwater engineer working on a twenty five million dollar project, and I said, "What would it take to have you make that compliant with sea level rise?" And he said, "Well, I'd have to pressurize it, cost me another five million bucks." I said, "Well." what would it take to do that? And he said, well, everybody on my city council is going to be gone by the time the impacts are seen, and none of them are going to thank me today for $5 million on top of a $25 million contract. So they put the stormwater system in the ground as is. Wow. I mean, it's when we did the uh, the power play uh, undercurrents theater. We I don't know if you saw this. It was on Monday evening. Yes. <laughs> uh, at one point we broke into small groups and the community, the little pod of folks that I was talking to was really honing in on this notion of lost the, the, the biggest impediment to, uh, or one of the largest impediments to retreat is the lost revenue. And so it sounds like you're trying to show the full picture of, Hey, look, it's not just lost revenue. It's, it's that you're going to save possibly not only this this asset, but maybe even save money in the long run, not having to buy these folks out. But you know, then the other thing we've been talking about, as we've as uh, it seems like retreat is in the is is becoming increasingly um, viewed as as inevitable and, and necessary, perhaps, is that getting folks out of the front off the front line, pushed back, is a legal taking. And uh, how, what sort of work are you doing in terms of uh, pushing the, under, the arguments, the legal arguments forward with local governments that they, they can, in fact, uh, 
retreat away and allow these wetlands uh, a space to to be as sea levels rise well as the impacts become more apparent there's um people know where the land is going to be uninhabitable x decades out especially now that we've got we've got benchmarks in in southeast virginia you can just go to a NOAA viewer and you know move the slider and you know where it's going to be uninhabitable the problem is you know we can have conversations these days the, the the issue is advanced so that we can have conversations with local government staff about retreat but we can't use the r word in public and we can't use the the r word is never to be heard or spoken in a city council or a county board meeting so you have to find all of these sort of sub rosa approaches to it and talk about public safety and reinvesting and you know use other approaches but the end goal is really to try to find um, find ways to move people who are now in the wrong place. They were there through no fault of their own. Mm-hmm. One of the big problems is many of these people's entire life savings is in their house. You know, the largest investment anybody makes is in their house. So you go to a retired chief petty officer whose 1,100-square-foot brick on-slab house is in a danger zone and is going to go underwater. And what do you do? Um, you can't just tell them to move. Uh, so you've got to find ways to try to put a little bit of cash in the pocket um, and encourage them to move. In Virginia, we don't have a very strong condemnation authority. So it's not like, you know, you're building a highway and you tell those five houses to move because you've got to put an overpass there. So the tools you have are pretty, pretty slim. And, um, you know, they involve the very clumsy FEMA programs for buyouts, which there's never enough money. Um, if that house floods and, and somebody agrees, okay, I'll take the FEMA buyout, oftentimes it's two years before FEMA shows up. And in right. the interim, some spec builder has come in, made him a cash offer, built a house on the same footprint, meaning the locality has no ability to say no to that building because it's on the same footprint. By right, they can build. They build a house that's five feet higher. They're out of the floodplain. They're paying $500 a year in flood insurance instead of 4000 and the house, you're not going to be able to remove it. So we're just struggling to get through this. The FEMA mm-hmm. programs are slow and clumsy. There isn't enough money. Um, we did uh, we did some research in our area looking at houses ready to be removed or lifted, amount of FEMA money coming in. And um, in Norfolk, if uh, of the X hundred houses that were in line, you would wait 188 years before FEMA showed up with money Mm. to fix your house. So we've been trying to get more money into the picture. We got the state to pass a shoreline resilience fund, which would put money into the hands of homeowners. They put a dime in it yet, but, you know, and we're now um, looking at can we use land trusts? Can we take a piece of property, flip it into a conservation easement, take the tax credits and tax deductions on that, and make the landowner partially whole um, because in Virginia we can actually do tax credits so and they're they're fungible you can sell them so can you put you know can you take that chief petty officer flip the house into a land trust and then get them enough money that 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 person can can move on with their life and then you take the take the house off the property and you turn it back into a wetland which <laughs> which it was 50 years ago before <laughs> before they filled it in and so that's that's one of the schemes we're working on now is um, trying to use conservation easements 
Let's let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, I know the folks who deal in land transactions are quite comfortable in conversing in the terms of what the conservation easement might be or what the land trust might be. Um, when you're out in the community and you're meeting a landowner for the first time and you're talking to them about, there may be a way for us to work with you that's beneficial financially. How does, would you go down the path a little sure. bit? Tell, t- tell us a little bit more about how this device or approach could work. Right. Well, a land trust is, is simply an entity that holds the development rights for a piece of property. And so um, every piece of property that's zoned in a certain way, you know, you can build a house on it. That's a development right. And it's worth a certain amount of money in your, in your you know, assessments at the county level. So if you put a house into a conservation easement, which is basically, no, you can't build on it, we're going to keep this, um, this piece of property open and in grass or wetlands or whatever, then the difference between what you could have developed that property for or what its current value is as a developed piece of property and what its value is as a non-developed piece of property, which is a whole lot less, that difference becomes... Um, Essentially becomes a tax credit in the in the in the state of Virginia. Hmm. So that's that's actually you know it's not a deduction; it's credit. So it comes off your taxes, right. and if you can't use it, you can sell it. Right. So it helps both you know that seven thousand square foot McMansion and the eleven hundred square okay, foot so brick house. Let me be the owner. I've got a vacant lot on the shoreline. It's subject to sea level rise. You've done the mapping. You're saying you know not a good place. I have the right to put a multifamily, play a duplex or a fourplex on it. And, and before that uh, event occurs, before that construction occurs, you all show up and say, hey, you know what, we, we think it would be great for you to consider as an alternative to building that fourplex is to do this tax credit thing. So let's walk through the transaction a little bit. Let's say I paid 200 grand for the lot. And let's talk this through. Let's say it's a fourplex. Can we play role play this a little yeah, bit can, and, and we illustrate can, it? We, we can try. We right, can let's try. try it. So you, you paid for the property, fourplex, um, you know, say that would be worth, I don't know, 750000 bucks for okay. a rental. You know, okay, that's the, the sort of the value of that property fully developed. And mm-hmm. I'm saying, nah, leave it like it is, and the land without the ability to be developed might be worth 50000 So you take that difference uh, between the developed value and the value as a piece of open property, and that becomes the the value of the easement that you're taking on the property the credit is yeah. that the value of the credit the it it varies from state to state in virginia yes that would be the value of the credit so what you can say to me is i tell you what i will put this in the land trust and in that land trust we're going to uh we're going to, to create a tax credit that's worth in this case could be more than a half a million dollars you can offer that to me as the owner and say you want a half a million, or I can sell the credit if I if I create I, the credit with you. Am I following? Yeah, this? that's that's basically the way it works. I mean, there's a lots of twists and turns and and um, you know fees that are paid and the rest. But sure, yeah, that's that's essentially it. So I end up with money. Either you, I can use yes. the credit to offset my taxes. If I don't have that much. I can sell the credit at. You know, dollar for dollar value. Probably. Well, it's eight, eighty cents on 80 a dollar in the exchange. Yeah, in eighty cents on that. Yeah. Have you been? Uh, tell us about the experience of using this particular tool. How is that? Well, because we're the first people to try it, it ain't actually been used yet. Okay, so <laughs> we're, we're trying to figure out what the economics of that really are. Okay, what is you know what's the attractiveness to the homeowner? 
um, is this actually something that passes muster with the state and federal tax people? Does IRS think this works? Because you can get a tax credit for, well, in this case, keeping something from being developed, it probably works cleaner than what we're really after, which is taking a developed piece of property and removing the structure and the people from it. And, you know, going that way may or may not be a tax credit. We're not sure. It looks like it might work, but we are doing some hard work right now trying to figure out how it does work, what's the cost. Um, the city of Norfolk right now has a zoning ordinance that says basically it divided the city into a soggy part and an upland part. And if you want to develop in the upland part, you come to the soggy part and you find somebody with a piece of property and you basically flip that land into a, into a conservation easement and you get development credits uphill. It's sort of like a, it's a TDR. It's basically transfer development rights. Yeah. But does a developer want to do it? Would it be easier for them just to put a bigger stormwater pond in and get the resilience points that they need? So we're, we're actually taking some pieces of property through this process and going, all right, landowner, here's what you can expect to have happen. Here's the credits. Here's what it costs. Um, developer, here's what it costs for you to transfer this property into, into the land trust. Does it make sense for you economically? And then the last piece, just to make it, you know, just put a, a fourth ball in the juggling act here. Right. Can we put a rolling easement on that property? Can you, when you sign your easement, stay on the property? But when some trigger point exists, 50% damage, your front lawn turns into a jurisdictional wetland, um, you know, there's three flood events in a year, whatever, or you just decide to leave, that's when the trigger point occurs. Because a lot of these folks, um, they're going to want to stay in their property for a while, you know, and, and their kids don't want it maybe, but they don't want to move right away. You know, they're not ready for, you know, retirement towers. And so they want to stay on the land for a while. But you don't want to stay them, them to stay on there forever. So you want to put a trigger point in. And people have talked a lot about rolling easements, which is basically as the sea level as the, sea, as the shoreline rolls uphill, you can't do you can't basically try to keep it away. You basically have to let it back onto your yeah, land. The public trust easement migrates landward with the water. Right. Quite a lot of discussion about that in the great state of Texas where we are yes. from, where we have a yeah. rolling beachfront easement. Yep. Um, but see, this would be a private transaction entered into voluntarily by the landowner in order to get the, you know, the, right. the prize of the tax credit. So it's a private transaction. It's between the developer and the landowner. There's no government in the middle of this. So it's like, okay, that's the contract. Why not? So have you guys looked at the, uh, the economics of if as you're talking to that landowner and they say, well, I really don't want to do this, but I want to keep it and, and maybe I'll sell it later, looking at what that sales price would be, knowing that you've got water coming up and is that going to be something less that he's going to get out of it uh, than he thinks or he or she thinks? It's the, the This whole process is is sort of unfolding as we talk, and it's sort of hard for people to figure out what is going to be the future impact. Is there any impact on the value of their property? What's it going to be? How fast is it going to accelerate? Um, we do know from a couple of, of uh, um, sort of unscientific pieces of research that the, the assessments of, pro of shoreline properties are going down in two of the cities that have been looked at. It is probably because of the um, flood insurance costs because the flood insurance cost is being negatively capitalized. In other words, mm -hmm. if I'm paying $4,000 a year in flood insurance, which is not unheard of in, in our area, um, that then is money that somebody could have spent. On the mortgage. On the mortgage. On the right. Mm -hmm. So to give you a quick example, my house, 
Out of a flood zone, 500 bucks a year flood insurance. In a flood zone, $4,000 a year. That's what my agent told me. It's real money. 3,500 bucks pushed through a 4% mortgage is about $60,000 in equity. Right. Why would I buy my house in a flood zone versus my house right. where it is now? So the work by First Street, I think it's called the study that they've done on property valuation. McKenzie came out, uh, consultants came out with a big report about 15, 20% property losses, valuation losses along the coast. Uh, Black Creek, the big uh, private equity fund. This real estate implications of sea level rise is starting to emerge in the financial industry and in the thinking community, the investor community. Um, What I like about what you're doing, and and the emphasis you said that this is not a government transaction, is... It is critical because uh, private property rights issues on the coast are intense yeah. and they can be lit- litigiously done. And what you're talking about is is trying to understand the interest of the affected party, the landowner, and create a package that is in, an, an inducement or attractive enough for them financially and is respectful of their needs and their ownership interest and their rights. I can't see the downside of that. Well... I, we can't either, um, although at some point, somebody in the taxation department in Virginia is going to notice that they're paying for the entire adap- adaptation bill in Virginia. They're going to close that close that tax credit down pretty quickly. Mm, I, I mean, because, because we're, yeah. you know, uh, we did a rough guesstimate, and just piling up some of the studies that have been done, we're looking at about $40 billion worth of adaptation needs in Tidewater, Virginia, east of 95, by by 2050 when we get a foot and a half one stay and those are you know mostly big public investments those don't count um government institutions like the navy base you know throw a few more billion on that and then it doesn't count the money that individual landowners are going to have to put in place as they try to keep the sea back so there's a whole lot of money that's got to be spent here and yeah this will be a part of it um Another observation that I I find interesting is that it seems like um, in you know on on the actual beach uh, the uh, out there on the barrier island if you've got one but where the ocean meets the land you're going to have that first row of beach houses and the notion of getting of like buying those folks out for you know this argument you're making about the insurance it's like. I think it's pretty hard because it just those those properties seem to be in such high demand by a, a, a class of folks that just pay the bill. Um, but when you're talking, and, the, and these are vacation rentals, these are little businesses basically, and so these costs are become built into the to the business model. But in the case of neighborhoods of subdivisions, full time residences, it does seem like the diff- like the um, the power of that insurance model that you just described, $500 a year versus $4,000 a year, that is real. And that really could be used to drive people away from flood prone areas, but also to reconstitute those lands into, you know, open space, undeveloped, un- undeveloped space. No, that's, that's right. I mean, the as, as risk gets correctly priced into both flood insurance and homeowners insurance, um, there's going to be an additional um, increment of cost to living in these dangerous areas. The, and they will, they will on their own, um, begin to vacate. The problem is going to be um, that 
chief petty officer whose entire life savings is tied up in the house. I mean, the rich folks are going to find a way out of this, and the extremely poor who rent are going to pick up and move. You know, the sort of good news, bad news is they don't have the assets. On the other hand, they don't have the assets that are locked in. The people who are going to get nailed in, in our work, and we do a lot of work at the neighborhood level, is that 1,100-square-foot brick house on slab, retired chief petty officer, you know, the working-class people whose who's life savings are locked up in the house. And those are the folks who really need this transition. But, I mean, we're seeing this already. Um, the, the communities to the west of us that are higher up, there's a feature called the Suffolk Scarp that's five meters higher that's, you know, right, right to the west of us. People are moving out of Norfolk, Hampton, Newport News, Nor- uh, Virginia Beach, and they're moving to these higher higher places. So, the transition's occurring, and so the the challenge really is to how do you fashion an orderly reinvestment of the shoreline versus a disorderly disinvestment of the shoreline, and and that's I like that. That Peter. is great. You know, that is a great statement of the issue right there. Can you say that again? That's really the 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 goal here should be an orderly reinvestment on the shoreline and not a laissez-faire <laughs> disorderly disinvestment of the shoreline. Right. So uh, I just wanted to come back to a conversation we'd had l- a little bit last night uh, to kind of um, kind of play on that idea of uh, either using land trust or something to provide some incentives. And I had worked done in Cumberland Island uh, a long time ago when it was transferring uh to becoming a national shoreline and the government had come in and, and basically uh, bought property and then leased it back to uh, those landowners and they had a 99 year lease on it uh, and thinking that maybe there's something along those lines that uh, you know you could also look at you know if you could consider having like maybe a, a revolving uh, fund that would then provide that initial capital investment in purchasing you know you, that the, the folks could get something back, maybe not 100% back of what they had, but but something along those lines. I, and I think it's going to take a number of these um, kind of efforts and because and, I think this is pretty brand new and innovative, you know, to some of these pilot programs to see, what, see what's going to actually work. I, th- I think you're spot on. I mean, we're going to have to find some innovative solutions. And the idea of using a revolving loan fund to buy the property using the lease fees or the, or the rents to pay off to basically service the loan really interesting idea i think i someone was telling me that in in england they have tried this in places but you know like i said we have this this fund in in virginia that is a revolving loan fund were it ever to get capitalized Mm -hmm. and that might be the kind of thing that you would do because it would in the end of the day it would be other than servicing the loan it'd be a no net cost to the to the lending entity whether it's a a bank or a or a government you you could even think about ways that you could you could inter, inter, um, interest the, the private lending market in this kind of a deal. You know, if there's just a little bit of an increment of gain on top of that, you know, maybe this is the, the new shoreline investment scheme. <laughs> well, Great. Skip, uh, it, it's interesting uh, that the, this is the conversation we're having with the executive director of the Wetlands uh, Watch uh, organization. And uh, I bring that up because... Uh, here you are in the middle of property transaction law, coastal <laughs> conservation easements, understanding what takings is, and the economics of investment and reinvestment. And I've got to say, for all the environmentalists out there who want to help the world and protect the environment, it comes down to stuff like this. And it is a very high-level discussion to make these incentives operate in order, because if you can 
are successful, as Tyler said, we're going to give that wetland a place to move into so that we don't simply drown and lose this incredibly important uh, physical feature, natural feature. When you started at the uh, Wetlands uh, Watch program, did you think you were going to be a property transaction expert by the end of it? No, and my board's constantly asking, should we change to infrastructure watch or finance watch? Or? But no, no. I mean, we basically said, okay, if I want to keep that piece of property from going in, I got to find out everybody who touches that transaction local government zoning you know what banking insurance we've we've tried to open lines of conversations with the mortgage banking industry you know everybody who touches that we've got to understand mm. mortgage bankers is interesting we we spoke with them and you know it's like the old derivatives market the wet mortgages and the dry mortgages all get bundled and sold and so we can't find a risk signal for them yet on residential on commercial mm-hmm. property where they hold the loan more often than not there is a risk signal. So, we, yeah, we, we get into this, these conversations to develop these relationships because we realize – when we started out, we went out to some of these rural areas and we said, save your wetlands from climate change. Nobody cares about wetlands, much to our chagrin, and they want to argue with you about climate change. So then we went re-message and we said, save your community from flooding. And everybody's, oh, you want to talk about that? Sure, let's talk about it. And so that's, that's where we sort of started to flip our message and get into mm-hmm. this broader conversation about – Okay, what's your community up to? What's the risk level? You know, how do we? It's a great lesson, and it's here very we are. Clever, I like that. Here we are at the Social Coast Forum, which is the focus is on the human dimensions of coastal management. As Sorelli Patel said in her in her keynote, a coastal management is people management, um, and you we we find ourselves in the institutions of decision making. Our local governments, our business and finance, our you know this is the this is the zone. For the environmental thinkers of today, I I really think it is on this issue. You know, about the third time I got beat up at a rural Kiwanis Club meeting with our old message, I realized I'd committed the cardinal sin of marketing, which is start where your customer is. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, we were talking instead of listening, which is a sin all of us in the environmental community commit. And once we calmed down (laughs) and, and started listening and started realizing you know, where the common points were between our goal and their goal of keeping dry and out of harm's way, we found that there were a lot of partnerships that we could, um, you know, put in place. Oh, Bill? No, I just wanted to just see that uh, understanding that how to have that conversation, you don't need to talk about climate change. But I'm just curious to see that now folks in Norfolk, I mean, is that something that they're much more believing in or what's your sense of that yeah at at first you know in virginia there was this big joke about how we had to call it instead of sea level rise it was recurrent flooding that was that's how it is in the early statutes that dealt with this thing the studies on recurrent flooding as time has gone on especially you know i guess about a year and a half two years ago there was a a step function a phase change in the way people looked at this because of the series of coastal events that were happening, the storms and the, the waters coming higher. And you can, you know, like I said, we, you know, I run over fish in the street now in, in you know, fish is roadkill. Literally. Kill. Yeah, but fish is roadkill is a little weird. So in those parts of the state that are most directly affected, it's, it's more and more apparent that there's a larger change going on. Um, and so you can begin to get into those conversations. The Eastern Shore of Virginia actually has a climate change adaptation working group that's been around for a number of years that's run by the, mm-hmm. the local governments. Um, so you can have that conversation. 
Um, and you can begin to talk about, um, you know, uh, CO2 and carbon mitigation. A lot of the rest of the state, not so much. Mm-hmm. But in the areas that are that have been affected. I think um, when people see it happening, they, they start getting it. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, for, for sea level rise, a lot of this for the next 100, 200 years is baked in. I mean, we could all start walking to work tomorrow. That's the big problem. You know, you move these yeah. big natural systems, and it's like, you know, slamming the brakes on an aircraft carrier. You know, 20 miles that way, it comes to a halt. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. the problem we have with, yeah. with the sea level rise. The, the warming of the waters and a lot of the other secondary effects that we're seeing in, in the coastal ecosystem, those, those will be affected if, in the short run if we begin to do what we have to do mm-hmm. on CO2 emissions. Well, there's a lot happening on that shoreline. Uh, the state of Virginia opened up a shrimp fishery for the first time I know. last year, and the waters are warm enough, and these Gulf shrimp species are that far north for the first time. So I always like to watch the critters, and they tell you what's nope. up. Um, we, we've got just a few more minutes, but in, in, in Bill's question about the, uh, the emergence or the evolution of the, of the dialogue in the community seems to be advancing – I see it in Florida, too. I like to say reality is a persistent teacher. And, and even in conservative Florida, uh, we have a resiliency cabinet-level position yeah. now under Governor DeSantis and serious efforts on sea level rise and other coastal issues. Uh, because at some point, this isn't about I- ideology. It's about physics, and it's about water. And these are truths, and, and they will be contended contended with. I'm curious about the role of the Navy here at Norfolk Naval Station, as you said, the largest naval facility, base facility, I guess, in the world. Uh, the Navy has certainly, I understand, been on top of this issue. Can you talk about them and their influence on this issue? Yeah, they, the military has been a real driver. For a long time, they couldn't talk about it. Uh, they'd come to meetings and take notes, but they wouldn't talk about it. And then there was at some point some flag officer somewhere <laughs> said no. It was actually it was the defense secretary um, under um, under Obama said okay we got to deal with this. I mean some of the earliest best stuff on climate change I read came out of the CIA. The the the, the implications for this are clear for national security. So the Navy being on the water on the shoreline um, has been taking steps to deal with this, um, and they have also now. Um, stepped outside the fence into the surrounding communities and said, you know, Naval Station Norfolk, 80%, 90% of the people don't live on base. They live in the surrounding community. So now they're in conversations with the surrounding communities in a, in a formal process that um, is called the Joint Land Use Studies. They do joint studies with the surrounding communities, and we've got one, two, three of those going in southeast Virginia. So they're helping drive some of the planning, um, and they have certainly... Um, increased the urgency with which the, the our region needs to deal with it. In our region, 40 cents out of every dollar comes from the federal government. We've got this amazing concentration, because of our geography, this amazing concentration of federal facilities, most of which are military. So they're driving it, but um, comes time to pay for it, that's going to be the interesting piece, because the, the bills on Naval Station Norfolk are real high, and they're going to take care of their own first before they go you know, raising roads in Norfolk, but it has driven it has driven the plan. The conversation yeah. and the last questionnaire. You mentioned you've been working with neighborhoods through uh, through Wetlands Watch. Uh, can you inform our listeners a little bit about the nature of those conversations and the status of the discussion that sure. you're having in neighborhood it, communities? It's actually it's really fascinating. Um, we stepped into a community about six or eight years ago. We were saying basically, okay, 
localities are starting to get it. There are no good community level plans for neighborhoods before before sea level rise. You know, after sea level rise, FEMA's there with money, everybody's with money. Okay, what do you do with a neighborhood before sea level rise? So we get a small sea grant award of about 50K, brought together some engineering students from Old Dominion University and some uh, architecture students from Hampton University, put them in a low-moderate-income African-American neighborhood in Norfolk and said, okay, flood-proof the neighborhood. They worked for a year, talked to the community, found out what their relationship with the water, good and bad, was what they were willing to put up with, what the geology, hydrology, soil types, everything you can imagine, they came up with a plan for the neighborhood that um, when they ran the models would have reduced the flooding from, I think it was Irene, 90%. As it turned out, the city of Norfolk was going in for a major grant from HUD, post-Sandy grant. This actually won an award and got $120 million. Wow. So it, it totally... Wow. Boy, <laughs> and, that, that, and, and does so, that get you an A in your class? Because i got to think that's an A. <laughs> well, it, t- it totally screwed up these students because they thought, oh, great. You know, it's like being an author and getting your first <laughs> work accepted. They thought, oh, great, all I have to do is do a play and I get $120 million. Bucks. But, but a lot of these students are working on the project. It's being implemented now. Fantastic. But here's, here's the bummer. We went one kilometer up the river to the next neighborhood up, similar, you know, low-moderate income, African-American neighborhood, none of the stuff that in that first neighborhood worked in the second. Different ownership patterns. First was owner-occupied, easy to deal with. Second was a lot of rentals. Landlords don't want to deal with this stuff. Different soil types. Uh, water wouldn't perk, uh, wouldn't wouldn't flow down. Ground table, groundwater was closer to the surface. I mean, it was just crazy-making. And so we developed a plan for that neighborhood and got some conceptual designs. We used some UVA students. We used some other students. We try to bring um, university students in who have a capstone class or a a practicum to give them the experience and then also give the community at least a conceptual design that they can go find some money from National Fish and Wildlife Foundation or something. So that that was a different thing. We went across the Broad Creek to a third community, completely different. So, you know, we're starting to pull our hair out. But then we're starting, we've been in six communities so far. We're starting to see some similarities where you can develop archetypes and go, wait a minute, this neighborhood looks like Chesterfield Heights or Ingleside. I think we can speed this up. But you really have to fit this into the community. You have to find, you know, is there an intact social structure there? Is there a leadership system that works? Are these people up for it? Is it the right home ownership pattern? You know, mm-hmm. and um, it really does have to be fit into these neighborhoods of like you know three, four hundred houses. What good work, yep. uh, custom built. Yeah, and uh, you know, it'd be great if you could write a paper and say, "Here's the three things to do," but you can't. This nope. is about people and the messy world of humanity and the hard work <laughs> of doing the effort, the, the work that you're doing. And it sounds. I don't know that there's any way to avoid what you're having to do, which no. is incredibly sophisticated community engagement at the leadership level in the elected officials level and then throw in the feds who've got the money and other state program federal legislative issues you've got to be good at all of this to execute this deal to save wetlands and uh i just think it's a hell of a deal and and it and 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 to get an introduction to the skill set and the work that you're doing uh so if people wanted to learn more or if you're down in uh, you know, if you're in South Carolina, you're thinking, gee whiz, that sounds like they've made some progress, or you're over in Texas on the Gulf Coast. How do they learn more about what you do and and learn more? The the easiest thing is on our website, www.wetlandswatchplural.org, um, and you can wander around there and, and see what we're up to. 
And from there, uh, there's a blog on there. Um, we don't have a podcast. We depend on people like you to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, just shoot me a line. Great. And I, I noticed that there's a support button, too. So uh, if anybody's interested in supporting all the good work right. that you guys are doing. Money talks and adaptation walks. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Skip Stiles, the executive director of Wetlands Watch from Norfolk, Virginia, one of the leading practitioners of the trade of coastal adaptation, uh, firmly rooted in the real world of people and politics and money. Uh, thanks a lot, Skip, for sharing your story and your expertise with the listeners on the American Shoreline Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on. <laughs>